This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a Leeds-based business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. I help business owners not to be lonely at the top. In this week's episode, we speak to Simon Gray, founder and CEO of Boost Drinks. Simon tells us how the company started and grew, the benefits of outsourcing much of his operation, the ups and downs of sponsoring Leeds United, and how a surprise £30 million deal to sell the business came about. He also teaches us how to create a virtual business. To make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, sign up to our priority list at www.leedsbusinesspodcast.com. Everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business. So, let's get into what is a captivating business story. On today's Leeds Business Podcast, we have Simon Gray, founder and CEO of Boost Drinks. Good afternoon, Simon. Nice to see you. Afternoon, Phil. Nice to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Now, you guys hit the news back end of last year with a big sale to AG Bar. Um, But let's go right back to the start. How did Boost Drinks start? So... uh... Quick, uh, quick summary of uh, of the journey. So I was born, uh, raised in Leeds, um, went through the Leeds grammar school system, um, went to uh, Newcastle Uni for a year, uh, party too hard, parents brought me home, went on to uh, Leeds University, did a European marketing degree. Um, I guess like with most sort of business study style degrees, it doesn't necessarily give you an entry anywhere you know, guaranteed. So I, uh, I got a summer job uh, working in the uh, food and drink wholesale sector uh, in Leeds. Uh, those guys uh, saw, I guess, a bit of ability in me, shall we say, and, and offered me a job when I came back after the summer. I worked for them for a year or so. I then set up uh, in partnership uh, with another guy, um, uh, our own food and drink sort of clearance, uh, end of line sourcing business. Uh, and then within a year or two of that, uh, I decided it was time for me to go solo. And while I was doing that, uh, I approached manufacturers uh, of all shapes and sizes and asked uh, asked a couple of them, you know, would they manufacture a product for me? Fortunately, one of them said yes. And uh, the rest really, I say, is sort of history now. Yeah, and I guess it's wouldn't be having this conversation if they wouldn't have said yes. Fantastic. So, fantastic. so where, where did the original idea come from? Where did the original idea come from? So I guess I was the I was the shopper before I was the I was the brand owner, and I guess uh, yeah I drank energy drinks to get me through university. Always thought they were a pretty um, expensive offering for a student, uh, and I've always had a bit of a value for money kind of mentality. So when I approached this manufacturer, I talked about what I was wanting to try and create recipe wise. So they helped with the the development there. I talked about the price positioning and the pack format. And um, yeah, they they got behind it, and uh, and off we went from there. So it was really probably from a the insight that yeah, I know what people want to drink, and I think I know what sort of price they need to pay. Fine, that's great, that's great. So you just went to a manufacturer, so I've got this idea, and they said yes, and then you went out to try and find somebody to sell your product for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it make it sound very simple. And to some degree, it's a simple model. So I'm not saying it's not. Yeah, I guess what we had to give them was an understanding of which part of the marketplace we were looking to to sell into, the kind of scale of what we thought we were trying to achieve. Um, I have to say, being honest, that's not what I would call a business plan. It was a little bit sort of shooting from the hip. I mean, 
we like to think we're pretty agile now with a bit more of a business business plan of what we're doing. But at, but at that stage, it was also another private family run. They were a big, big organization. Um, and they were only trading really with, I think, Sainsbury's, Asda and Morrison. So they really did give us a chance. Uh, through my food wholesale business, um, I was also working with um, like one or two sales agents. So they took the brand and put it in front of um, one or two uh, discount retailers, uh, one which sort of bought into the proposition quite quickly. So we went back to the manufacturer and said, look, volume-wise, this is what we think we, we need straight away. Um, the, the, the retailer we were trading with, um, thankfully for us, was working on seven-day payment terms with us in our food business. So we managed to match that. And I think they recognized as a startup, you know, that they were sort of looking to, to be supportive as well, which was great. So between the manufacturer, you know, backing the idea and the retailer, you know, seeing a gap in their portfolio and something different in the marketplace, you put the pieces together and um, yeah, that got the rock rolling. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and how early into the journey did you sort of think, actually, we might have something here? Well, I guess I always believed in the proposition, but this is where I guess I was, you know, you've, you've got to get some traction under your belt. You know, it was very much a lifestyle idea. My food wholesale business was, I guess, giving me the security that I needed, you know, from a, a you know, a paying the mortgage and the bills perspective. I just got married. So to some degree, the risks were low when the commitment levels outside of, you know, your, your marriage, uh, uh, you know, there's no siblings, that kind of thing. Um, and so I suppose it probably took about two or three years to really start to see that the repeat business is coming through, the marketplace is taking to what you're doing. Um, people are backing you. People are talking about, why don't you think about this? You could come and offer it there. The sales agents were fundamentally, you know, getting behind it. They were only a commission. So everybody was in a good place. So it probably took a couple of years. And, and that's really then when I, I closed the food wholesale business and said, look, I've got to go all in on, on the Boost brand. Yeah, I mean, that, that's always a, a key point, and, and I did it in my business, and I know lots and lots of people do it. It's that, it's that do a jump, do a, do, a, do a take that risk and actually jack in the proper job and, and, and go all in on that. Was that an easy decision, scary decision? Was it scary? I suppose when you think about it looking, you know, when you look life, you know, in reverse, it seems quite a scary call. I suppose when, I mean, I was 28 at the time, so how scared are we of things at that sort of age? You know, um, yes, I was aware. And I, I suppose I have a bit of a mindset of, well, look, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, but so I suppose that's why I took two or three years before I closed the other business. We were making money, we were reinvesting. It felt good, you know, and that's when you start to think about, you know, do we start to broaden the portfolio? Do we start to broaden the customer base? Do we start to invest more into marketing? You know, you've got to have some traction. You know, we didn't just have sort of, you know, money to burn. Um, but I wouldn't go as far as even then saying there was a strategy. It was still some quite tactical sort of decision making, you know, along the way. Right, right. Okay. So when when was the first sort of product expansion from from the energy sort of core part of the business? So we started off with like a, I'm not sure if you can see a picture of it behind me just over here. So we had a big one litre bottle which we still sell today that was our first product which in essence was four cans of like red bull style product in a bottle for a pound that that was the proposition and, and for two or three years that was all it was and that was 2001 2004 we came into a half liter a smaller version of that and then actually one of the big one of the sort of the big 
um, I suppose catalyst, but it, it felt like a, you know, a, a big problem at the time was in 2006. I think it was a, a Friday evening. I was stood in, I think, my in-law's garden and the phone rang and our manufacturer told me that they just sold the business. So we have obviously, a, you know, a, a very big outsourced model and we always felt we were, we, were, we were working with the number two carbonated soft drinks manufacturer in the country. They got bought by the number one. So we went from being probably this much of the number two's business to kind of this much of now a Canadian corporation. So that was kind of scary. But at the same time, they were saying to us, well, look, why don't you take the brand into cans? Why don't you look at sports drinks? And we'd started, or I'd started to have that conversation in my own head. Then you've got somebody who's got the capability uh, to offer that up for you as well. So that was the first time that the portfolio started to broaden into different pack formats. It took us from sports drinks into, uh, sorry, from energy drinks, traditional energy drinks into things like sports drinks. Um, I've always wanted to try and keep the model simple. You know, I'm a big believer that you sort of sweat what you've got. I think, you know, new product development is really exciting. It wows consumers. It wows the marketplace. It can create a lot of complexity. And we've, we've sort of fallen foul of that over the years. So we do try and keep it tight. Um, and then I suppose over time, we've been into other areas. Some things we are still in now. Um, other areas we've tried to see where we can stretch the boost brand across other functional areas. We've been in things like smoothies for a while on the back of what Innocent were doing. Um, but that worked for a small period. We went into, you may have seen over the years, these seem in petrol stations, what we call energy shots, these little almost like pocket rocket kind of propositions that, that didn't work. Um, but then we've also moved successfully into like the protein shake category, challenging one, but, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of interest out there. And more recently, our, our probably, you know, our latest, um, uh, our latest extension is into iced coffee. So I guess coming in on the back of what, you know, Starbucks are doing in the marketplace. And that's been a real big play. So we try to, um, within the realms of where the brand can go, stretch across the, what we call the sort of the functional drink spectrum. Right. Okay. So as a, so is that a proactive strategy is just keep an eye on the market and then follow people in, see what works. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't get rid of it sort of thing. Very much so. I mean, we, we, are a, we are a fast follower. You know, we're a challenger brand. That's what we do. You know, our job is not to be the innovator. Um, we have moments of innovation, you know, pure innovation, whether it be going down a different flavor route to what the market's doing and that kind of thing. Um, and I suppose to some degree, price point is one of our sort of areas of real sort of, you know, added value to the marketplace. But yeah, absolutely. Wherever there is a brand leader that's really blazing a trail in sports and energy drinks, we want to be the number two uh, behind them. Um, and I suppose that the bigger they become globally and the more they spend on marketing and educating um, consumers about, you know, the benefits of the proposition, the easier it is for us to kind of like surf on the back as the, the great value challenger. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Something you touched on there. Um, and I know you're big on this. You outsource a lot of what you do, don't you? The, the manufacturing, yes, the wholesaling, yeah. the logistics. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you do that? What are the plus sides of that? And, and perhaps sometimes where the, where the negatives are as well? Yeah, for sure. 
So I guess, you know, outsourcing probably became quite a big trend in sort of the 90s, probably especially in things like IT. Um, I didn't necessarily recognize the food and drink market, but I understood sort of, you know, the, the outsourcing model. Um, in my, I suppose, in my food and drink wholesale business, you know, we were a, a trading company. We were very asset light and we were using third parties in terms of um, where we're buying brands from, using logistics partners and warehousing in the marketplace, using, um, you know, sales teams, et cetera, et cetera, that were, that were outsourced. Um, why do, um, why do we outsource? Well, I suppose, um, what you're always trying to do is test and learn principally. Um, and it's a lot cheaper and it's a lot more painful. I say cheaper from a sort of cash flow outlay, not cheaper that you're obviously paying a premium for having the service provided. So it requires a lot less cash, you know, upfront to start with. Um, you're also working with people where arguably it's done better than you, more efficiently than you, and through people that have got absolute world-class kind of expertise. They also come with um, industry connections that they can introduce you to. Um, they have greater buying power when it comes to procurement. Um, their processes are a lot more stable and, and consistent. Um, there's a resource pool within their organization. So food and drink is, is, is particularly complex you know, and, and there's risks attached to it from a quality perspective. So to have, um, as well as people who can put the drinks in the bottle, um, you've got people who can work with you on recipe development. You've got people who can work with you on shelf life. You've got people who can work with you on carbonation levels, all those kinds of things. So in, in food and drink, there is, there's not many brands apart from probably the likes of Coke and Pepsi. Those, the scale of, of those guys, um, that would actually manufacture themselves. Most of the industry, whether it be own brands for the supermarket or whether it be, you know, uh, SME uh, um, startups that are using, you know, third parties. Um, I think also having outsourced manufacturing um, brings flexibility on the formats because if we were just in bottles and then we wanted to go into cans, we'd have to invest in a whole canning line. Um, so yeah, it brings flexibility there. It takes away complexity of so many staff, health and safety, forklift truck drivers, all that, all that sort of stuff. And we always, to be fair, we always challenge ourselves on, should we bring the proposition in house? You know, we, we probably produce now maybe 200 and 200 million plus units of drinks a year. And I reckon we would be producing, if we were the manufacturer, I think we'd be producing about 10 days a month. So the downtime of those machines not running and the margin that would be eroding to support that just doesn't stack up. Um, so yeah, so the manufacturing side, I guess, has been, um, you know, something that we've lent on very heavily. I guess what we always try to do is to look at when is the right time to bring it in-house um, so, you know, the, the sales team was the first thing where we moved from like a sales agents model. We brought in a new sales director. They created their own sales structure, marketing, the, the whole marketing department has developed over time, but we clearly still have digital agencies, PR agencies, media agencies that are still third party. Um, HR was outsourced for a long time, uh, up till more recently, we brought in a people and culture director and, you know, 
that lady's also building the HR to support. I mean, we're only a team of 35, but, you know, we're also very big on developing people, being the best version of our business that we can be. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot more in-house outside of the manufacturing than there was, but we're still not afraid to be leaning on consultants when it comes to even the last year or so on things like e-commerce, learning about that. We're obviously thinking about things like artificial intelligence and, you know, that's uh, not an expertise we have in-house currently. Um, but I guess what we try to do also is to create, I suppose, a um, almost like a, it's like a virtual business, you know, to a degree. We're a sales and marketing business, but we have, you know, branded vehicles that go up and down the motorway every day that have boost along the side of them. So the perception and the opportunity to advertise comes with the vehicles. The drivers are all branded in our branded clothing. People who represent the business as a third party, it's simple things. They all have a boost email address. They all have relative levels of autonomy to make decisions on our behalf. So you can outsource and then you can outsource. There's different ways of, of approaching it. Um, I guess just sort of briefly on the flip side of, I guess, why you wouldn't. I mean, yeah, you always want to retain your core strengths in-house. And for us, that's very much the IP around the recipe and the brand. So that's clearly owned in-house. Um, you always, as you're growing, you want to try and, I guess, fully utilize the resource that you have. So you wouldn't outsource if you've got people who can step up there. You can start to bring the cost base of things down. Um, you want to retain just a level of control, but you have to recognize that, you know, that's what you give up to some degree. And I guess the other reason why you wouldn't outsource, and it's no detriment to the people who we work with, they're absolutely fantastic, but nobody will ever have the passion you do and the single-minded focus that you will have because they represent so many other clients as well. Yeah, I, I, I like the I like the the idea you used there of, of yeah aspects of it are a virtual company and you for a company the size of Boost and you've and you've only got thirty five employees that's yeah that's that's proof of of the virtual aspect of it working and, and you mentioned you've now got a people and culture director I noticed you you were in the Sunday Times top one hundred places to work you must be really pleased about that. Yeah, I mean, I think when I first started out, you know, just just being honest, I've never been um, really, bar a year or two when I was younger, I've never been an employee for any period of time. I've never been developed. I've never had a line manager of, of sorts. And I've also never been an employer. So I've had to learn on the job. Um, and I suppose in a bit like I didn't have a business plan per se at the start, it was more an idea in my head and off you go. I didn't really have a clear strategy. I didn't really have a clear vision. I didn't really appreciate culture and having the clarity of, of, of what that means for people and how central it has to be to all your decision making. And it can trip you up at times without it. And, and that's where some of the areas where, you know, you sort of, you, you fall down a bit, you learn from it and off you go. But this is where bit by bit bringing specialists in house you know, Eleanor, who's our culture director, that, that's her thing. You know, we're very aligned on how we want the business to roll, both internally with the team and, and how we work and how we interact with people, you know, externally. Um, and she's sort of helped try to drag out of me, you know, 
what is the purpose of the business? You know, we have a, a purpose statement, which is energizing everybody in every way. That's about the products that we sell. That's about the way that we work. That's about the partners that we want to work with. That's, that's just the way we want people to feel working with us and for us. Um, so framing that is, is really important. Creating your own, you know, business values, you know, so you can recruit against them, so you can reward against them. I mean, these are all the things that, you know, to some people, I suppose, in bigger corporate environments, they get it. I, I get it now. We've had to sort of retrofit it a little bit to the to the business, um, but it, it's it's amazing the power it has, um, and yeah, where it can actually fast track some of the decision making, where it keeps people tight, and for some people, I guess it will and won't be the right environments for them to be in. You know, we're all kind of different, but we want people who can, yeah, sort of you know tie in, and you know, we're not trying to create a, a load of me's. That's not what I want here. You know, we want people to have individuality, but at the same time, we have to have a way of doing stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. And a lot of businesses go through this this situation where the owner almost feels like they're making up as they go along because there, there isn't a playbook sometimes. Um, and it sounds a little bit like like you've had to do that. Can I pick up on a few things? You just said they obviously made a, you know, a few mistakes along the way. What do you think was the biggest sort of misstep you think you made in the, during your business journey so far? Uh, well, there's probably been quite a few. I guess it's whether externally some of these things look like mistakes. <laughs> um, you know, again, as I said before, when you, when you look backwards, you know, you know, the packaging that we brought to market at the start, you know, it, it was awful. But at the time, it felt right. Uh, you know, you cringe, you know, when you look at it. So... I suppose I look at things that we've done well and then things that we could get better. Um, but, but in all honesty, I think, yeah, not having, I suppose, a clear sort of culture early on, I think has, has caused us, it's sort of slowed us down. It makes things a bit noisy at times. You know, we've, we've, we've had, you know, cash flow issues early on because, I mean, not early on, like I said, at the start when we were first starting the business, but as we were growing and as you're scaling up, we didn't have, a finance director in the business. So we didn't have, you know, 12 weeks cash flow forecasting, those kinds of things. So, you know, things can then start to all of a sudden, you know, close in around you very, very quickly. But that's a failure because of your success. Um, we've, we've early on some of the things that we were selling that weren't working well, we didn't pull them out of the marketplace quickly enough. You know, they then end up getting delisted where actually we're learning now if something's not working, we should be able to know that it's not working before a customer tells us it's not working. Um, so, so things like that, I suppose, uh, are some of the, I mean, we've not had like epic failures, thankfully. Um, but yeah, there's always things that you can do differently and or better. Um, you know, you tie yourself up in commercial agreements at the start. Um, but again, at the right time, those agreements felt the right business call. It's a bit like the government in COVID. I mean, they kept saying things like, you know, with the information that we had at the time, we made that call. So I can sort of, I, I get that to, to, to a degree. Um, but I do think that, yeah, as I said, you know, everybody was kind of like uh, a beginner once. Every expert was a beginner once. So you you got to kind of start somewhere. When you've got 20 years on your back, you still make mistakes now. You know, we're going into, like I say, e-commerce and artificial intelligence. We're going to make mistakes coming up. I don't know what they look like yet. 
but we'll we'll fail, we'll fail fast, and hopefully we'll fail forward. So there's no no major crises, just lots of lots of learning opportunities. Yeah, I mean, there's there's there's, there's things, but there's nothing where you know I ever think, you know, oh, you know, it was going to put the business really in jeopardy. Thankfully, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, things like COVID were, a, you know, you didn't know what you were going into there. But actually, outside of you know, sales were okay through COVID. It's, it's how you, you navigate that for your staff and keeping people safe. You know, that, that could have been, you know, a very, very tricky one. But thankfully, you know, I think we took a lot of the right calls early. Um, so, yeah, I think we've probably got more right than wrong. But we, we look at the stuff that goes wrong, as like you said. You know, one of our business values is opportunity and everything. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. And w- one of the things I think has been, has been a success for you is is actually the the retail channels you've gone down so obviously you've you you you're doing forecourt c stores symbol operators i assume that was a, a a proactive decision or was that just like that's the only place we can get me into we'll start there and, and never moved out no so i guess yeah it was probably slightly strategic without us even really know or calling it strategy at the time but you know sports and energy drinks are bought on the move so yes, they sell them in the supermarkets, but really they're, they're bought in your local convenience stores, petrol stations, all the, the places that you, you, know, you just mentioned. Um, so we started there. You know, most brands tend to start in the grocery channel. And actually most brands, to be fair, usually come from the big corporate stables. So they go that way, big media plan, and then the rest of the, the sort of the industry follow. We had to build it very much from the, from the ground upwards. Um, but it almost became quite a unique selling point in the fact that it wasn't in the grocers. So the trade, the wholesale cash and carry business that we were working with really started to, you know, really like that as a point of difference. They got behind it. They were offering us more opportunities. Um, I, I kept bringing, I suppose, more and more people into the business that have got that grocery understanding and have kind of said, it's very, very difficult. We're not a manufacturer. We don't need to be there at any cost. It's not overhead recovery. Most of the consumption is over here. Let, let's focus where we are, um, and that and that's you know that that's really yeah really worked you know very very well for us. So yes, it's become more strategic over over time. Um, I mean, we've also taken on distribution actually of another brand called Rio a couple of years ago, which you can see behind me now, a grapefruit carbonate because they were looking to um, do more in the independent retail channel, wants to tap into our expertise. We've taken that on board. They also want that brand into the grocers. So we are having conversations with them to help their brand over there. But for the Boost brand, yeah, the uh, the convenience retail channel and where the consumption is, yeah, that's the place to be. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about is the sale. But before we do that, I want to talk about the Leeds Business Podcast Gentlemen's Agreement. So, and ladies' agreement. I've got to say gentlemen's and ladies' agreement. So, this is the agreement. It's got two halves. My half of the agreement, every week, I bring you, the listener, inspiring, interesting, and fascinating Leeds business people, totally for free. Your half of the deal, Mr. and Mrs. Listener, has three simple steps. Step number one, I want you to share this podcast with one person, one person you think will get value from it. Step number two, I want you to post a review of the show at either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And step number three, I want you to give this episode a like. That's all. Fair deal. Simon, do you think that's a fair deal? Hardly heard fairer than that, yeah. There you go. There you go. So, 
tell us about selling the business. How did it come about? Was it for sale? Was it accidental? Well, I suppose in the same way I said, and I'm being dead straight with this, in the same way I had no business plan at the start, there was no real exit plan, you know, if I'm honest. Um, you know, we've built the brand. And I guess I've always taken a view, I guess it's a bit like, you know, your house. You know, my house isn't on the market for sale. If anybody wants to talk to me about buying my house, I'll have a conversation. Um, and I think, you know, what we've done over the years is is made the business better and better that you, I suppose, you do come up on the radar. You do, um, in a nice way, become a victim of your own success. So all the stepping stones to grow your business at the same time becomes the stepping stones potentially to, to make it attractive for sale. Um, you know, we, we got into a, you know, we've had a, I suppose we've had probably loose interest over the years, nothing that's really sort of either been really at the right time or the right sort of partner kind of thing. And then we got into a, a conversation, um, trying to think when it was now, sort of uh, about Easter time last year. And um, again, it still really wasn't necessarily my time, but I guess like with a lot of things in life, you know, <laughs> timing's never sort of uh, not ideal. And when I say not the right time, I guess, you know, the business I feel is at quite a crossroads. Um, you know, we've brought in a lot of new people. We've launched into new categories. We've got a lot of new customers that we're working with. The culture side of it, the Sunday Times thing you just talked about, there's lots of great stuff going on in the business. And I guess... I love what I do, who I do with it, and all the reasons why you get out of bed every day. So whilst I was always happy to talk about a potential sale, it had to be sort of with the right partner, with the right sort of structure, with the right sort of role. Um, when we got into the conversation, you know, with, um, you know, with AG Bar, um, I guess from, from their perspective, I guess, you know, and for others, I guess, you know, they come through a period of COVID. There was there was money tied up, I guess, in businesses that were looking to grow and acquire. So I guess the timing became, you know, became right for them. Um, at the same time, I suppose, like for a lot of us, you know, you're you do your sort of COVID reflecting and thinking about where where you're at. You know, we've had an amazing 20 years, and whilst I firmly believe that we've got a lot more mileage in the tank moving forwards, um, you know, the world is very different to what it was two, three years ago. You know, we've seen through COVID, you know, personally and professionally for people, you know, things have been, you know, horrific for, for very many. No business is invincible. Um, hadn't really got any sort of family succession coming through, you know, anytime sort of soon. Um, and while the business has been very good to us over the years, you know, the, the opportunity to, to, I guess, crystallize, you know, the family's security long-term and also, I guess, to for any brand, um, you know, the ultimate validation, I guess, for any brand, I guess, is when some... I've always had great admiration for people who have sold businesses to, to big either UK PLCs or global players. It is just... And not that I look for validation, but, you know, people look at brands and the ones that go on and keep growing. You have to recognise when is maybe the right time for a button pass. Saying that, you know, um, I suppose YAG Bar, you know, any any sale had to be right for me, family, where the brand sits, my team, and also the customers that have been very good to us. I wanted to be part of the next the next stage. 
Um, you want a good cultural fit, all those, all those kinds of things. And, and when we met the guys, I mean, I, you know, we all know about the Iron Brew brand, you know, from a heritage perspective and being a great, you know, UK, you know, institution. Um, I also understood that those guys had a strong presence within the wholesale and cash and carry sector. So they knew the customer base. Well, they had a, a gap in their portfolio, um, so they obviously wanted to, you know, fill that, but they also saw the other categories that were in. So when you kind of roll all that together, yes, we had to get, you know, the price right, the structure right, my role right, all those kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, you, you sort of take a, a long, hard look at it and you think, do you know what? Yeah, it might not have been the timeline I was working to. It might have been five years down the line, but, you know, we're really grateful that people buy into the vision of what we're trying to do. The fact that me and the team can be part of that future. So yeah, in in the rounds, it, it made a lot of sense for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know exactly where you're coming from. We we had exactly the same. We we weren't for sale, and eventually somebody comes along with with a, you know, a product fit and a big enough check. You go well, you know, maybe. So where does where does that sit you now within the business plan and within AG Bar and and the future? Yeah. So. Um, Part of the, I guess, the structure, and it was actually, you know, quite a sort of visible deal in the marketplace, which I guess kind of wasn't the choice, but you, you can't always dictate how these things go. Um, so, yes, there's been a, an upfront payment, then there's an earnout period. Part of the, the agreement was that it's business as usual. So what does that mean? It means, you know, we run the business. So there is a new boost board where we meet every couple of months, um, there is this two-year earn-out period, which you know I've had to explain to my team as well. That's not the length of my contract. I have, I have an employment contract like anybody else does. It's open-ended. Um, just the, the earn-out model is to crystallize the final valuation of, of the deal. That's all. Um, and then it's a matter of you know going out in time um, and it, it was interesting, actually, when we were talking about outsourcing and, you know, what you do at the right time, you know, there will be synergies because AG Bar are a manufacturer in their own right. So they'll want to bring actually some manufacturing in-house, which is not something, like I said, we've ever done before for the reasons that I talked about. You know, at the same time, you know, because I guess post-COVID, you know, you're looking for greater resilience in supply chain. And we've got some great manufacturers but to have that vertical integration within your own brand brings another layer of security. So however safe we felt we were from a manufacturing base before, feels like that's, that's kind of you know, gone up. So yeah, so me, my leadership team, our culture, our business plan, you know, everything's in place um, for, yeah, for the, for the foreseeable, for the foreseeable future. And, and, and thankfully, you know, we've, we've got off on the right footing you know, with the bar guys, they're really good guys and girls. They're very supportive. On the one hand, they're, they're sharing and, and supporting where they can. By the same token, they, they, I think they are very pleased that what they've bought, especially internally, as well in terms of the people and the style, and, you know, we're quite low maintenance just to, to kind of get on with the job, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're just up and running and, and, and enjoying it. Now, we're both... Big Leeds United fans. We're both season ticket holders, and you guys are, are now one of the sponsors at Leeds. Got to ask you, how did that come about? So yeah, I've been uh, yeah probably a season ticket holder for best part of kind of forty years, nearly now I reckon. 
Uh, and I, I suppose I've always, um, you know, tried to understand the relationship between, you know, sponsorship generally and brand. Um, but I also, you know, try to keep myself, I'm a bit boring like this. I try and sort of distance from an emotional perspective, what I like doing on a personal level. And then kind of, how does that relate to the brand? Um, when we, uh, brought in a new marketing director about four years ago, who I'll be honest with you, does not know the offside rule. He doesn't follow football, you know, but he gets marketing. It was, it was kind of his call. It was actually, um, as, um, I think Leeds were, just back in the Premier League and uh, football fans were getting back into stadiums a little bit. So it all kind of came together at the right time. And yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a fantastic, you know, relationship in the city to kind of challenger brands, you know, up against some of the, the sort of the, the David, you know, David and Goliath kind of style to energetic um, brands. So a lot of it, you know, just, just fitted really well together, but I have to, um, yeah, distance myself from it. Uh, what I probably didn't, re and it's working really, really well, you know, again, they've been a great advocate, you know, for the brand in terms of the opportunities and the things that we're doing with the brand. And it's it's had some, some, some great traction so far. The bit I didn't sort of think about, an age of a marketing director probably didn't put this on my radar. You'll, you'll know what it's like as a, as a football fan, especially as a Leeds United fan, it could be a roller coaster. You know, Saturday nights are either amazing or, you know, your wife says to you, why don't you support somebody else? Well, I can't do that. <laughs> when you've then got a business plan where actually every Saturday night subject to the results is either amazing or it's bloody hell, things aren't going to plan. When you've got both happening at the same time, Saturday nights be kind of like doubly amazing or really, really difficult to, you know. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great relationship. Um, yeah, the, the, the guys at the club are, are great. The business, you know, the team internally are really enjoying the relationship, both working with the club, but also the access to the club and around the city and the things that it's things that it's doing. And it's had great traction in the trade. The customers have got behind it. It's great from a networking perspective as well. So, um, so yes, had a had a big thumbs up. Brilliant. But do, do, do they bring ideas to you? Do you take ideas to them? I mean, how how sort of open and flexible is 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 you know, what you get out of it. I mean, we're, we're quite clear about what it is that we want to do, whether it's purely to drive awareness of the brand and you use obviously the, the digital kind of LEDs and the stadium branding for all of that. You know, we're, we're obviously looking to reach as large an audience as we can. So on the one hand, it's a bit disappointing, obviously clearly with the relegation, but at the same time, the audience is, is slightly different. Hopefully it's sort of short term and brand building is, you know, a long-term play, you know, as you know. Um, but no, they are very proactive, especially on, you know, when it comes to like social channels, when it comes to player activation, you know, those kinds of doing things in the community. Um, you know, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been really positive. They're really responsive. And if we come up with kind of different ways of doing things to what they've been maybe doing previously with sponsors, they get that our brand is very closely affiliated with sports. So they're, I guess it's, it's quite a, quite a learning opportunity for them too. And, and they move fast on stuff. That's the other beauty, which kind of works for us as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. One of the things we do every week on the Leeds Business Podcast is all our guests give us a, a how-to session. So I know you've got something planned. So Simon, over to you. What are you going to teach us how to do? So for me, in terms of the, uh, yeah, how do you, how do you set up a, a virtual business, which I think is kind of, you know, what we've been, you know, talking quite a lot about, you know, early on. 
I think you have to be very clear about what it is from an objectives perspective, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to do. I think you need to surround yourself with, um, you know, expertise that can, that can bring that to life. I think you have to recognize that there will be um, pros and cons like there are with, there are with most things. So you have to be open-minded that you will have to give up some control uh, but what you will get in return is plenty of agility. Um, I think you have to be in a position where you can uh, work in partnership with people. I think you have to recognize if you're tapping into expertise, while you build up trust over time, it is very important that you do look, learn and listen, you know, quite quickly. And while it might feel, oh, do you know what? We could do this quicker, better, more cost-effectively. Just be very, very careful because there's, as we talked earlier, there's, there's plenty of pitfalls in building a, a virtual business. Um, I think though agility these days is the sort of order of the day. Um, so I think to, to have um, the right uh, partner as well. So while our outsourcing might have lots of benefits, you can have... Uh, you know, a big organization that might not treat the outsourcing approach like a maybe a smaller family like manufacturer might take the approach. So I think to some degree, being a, a, a bigger fish in possibly a, a smaller pond um, is also is also great. Um, and then you have to give it some you have to give it some time, clearly, um, and for the relationships to develop. Um, to focus on your strengths and leave people to what they're good at. I think as you grow and develop with a an outsourced partner, I think you also, you learn quick. I think you can challenge harder. I think you have to challenge at the right time. I think you can get them to look to um, sort of co-invest in what you're trying to do because there is a, there's very much a win-win, you know, here. Um, and uh, I think remember that, there's lots of resources out there in their businesses that can become an extension. So while we've got 35 people in our business, I feel like day to day, my team is almost working with a pool of potentially a hundred people around us uh, in all sorts of different areas of expertise across all sorts of those, you know, departmental um, disciplines. Um, we talked about, you know, um, kind of failing fast if you get a partner that for whatever reason, you know, doesn't want to work with you anymore, or you don't feel that you're getting it enough from them, I guess it's always important to have sort of, you know, contingency conversations in the background, especially we're in a volatile, you know, marketplace now, you know, make sure you're crystal clear on the sort of financial stability of the partner that you're, that you're working with, maybe have dual supply if you can of some of your sort of key products or, or services. Um, because, you know, very much, you know, I think, especially in food and drink, I mean, it's absolutely here to stay, the outsourcing model. Even our, like I say, even our new owners, while they may want to bring some parts of it in-house, they still, even as a, a massive organization, have capacity pinch points or capability um, blockers that another, manu you know, if you want to make a multi-pack, let's say, that somebody else can do that can do better. Um, I mean, also, you know, when you look at flexible working now, the global talent pool, you know, the opportunity to outsource further and faster into a wider pool um, is is clearly there. And this is again all all before we start, you know, using things like Chat GPT. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, building a virtual business can sound easy. Uh, there are pitfalls in it. There's, there's clearly a lot of upside. I mean, we've had 20 years where, you know, we absolutely have, have done a lot of things right, learned a lot of lessons. As I said earlier, there's, there's ways of means of almost um, sort of demonstrating that it can look more like yours, even though it's not actually yours like some of the branding that you do, some of the email addresses that you give, some of the authority on decision-making. So there are virtual models and there are virtual models. But uh, yeah, I've been a, a big fan of it. I think there's lots more businesses that are going that way, you know, these days. And uh, yeah, yeah, I say I would, uh, I would approach it with an open mind. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, a, and a brilliant how-to from somebody who's been there and done it and, and made a huge success of it. Um, one final question then. Uh, again, we always ask our guests to, uh, to give a shout out to another Leeds business. So who are you going to give a shout out to? So uh, there's a young guy that I know. I do a little bit of uh, mentoring with him, actually. So it's quite nice to be able to give him a shout out. A guy called um, Josh White. Uh, so he's got a brand called uh, Copycat Fragrances, uh, which again, I can sort of resonate with what he's not looking to do, he is doing, and he's doing brilliantly. You know, he is um, disrupting the big brands with, again, like we've done, with very much affordable quality through an outsourced model. Uh, he's been he's been in there not long now. I'm, I'm, I think maybe only about four or five years. He's ridden the COVID wave. He's brought family and friends in and around to help him develop. So, yeah, I mean, we, we catch up sort of once a quarter, and he sort of fires a few questions at me, and we bounce a few things around we've even talked about things like business plans you know perish a thought recently um but he's uh, he's built an amazing sort of d to c type business um very you know very online driven and social media driven he's ambitious hard working charismatic um and and eager to learn so yeah i'm sure destined for big things fantastic and there will be uh links to his business in the show notes below simon great thanks ever so much it's been fascinating Thanks for me on. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it both interesting and of use. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go up and do something else. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our gentleman's agreement. See you next week.